Welcome to episode three of Keep the Hotel Empty. I'm your host, Eric Paul. In studio today, we are grateful to welcome in musician, artist, and sound designer, John Sully Sullivan. In this episode, Sully discusses his starts in the heyday of New York City's East Village, what it takes to be a musician, and the land where sound becomes art. Please enjoy. Welcome to Keep the Hotel Empty. Today we've kept the hotel empty to welcome in our friend John Sully Sullivan. Today we're going to talk about his life as a creative, what he's done as a sound designer, performance artist, and all-around renaissance man. Welcome, John. I'm so glad to be here. You have no idea. Thank you so much. Well, we're very glad to have you here. So I know you've got an interesting past that's led you to an interesting present. So I'd like if you could try to bring us up to speed a little bit about your time beginnings in New York, right? That's correct, yes. Born and raised in New York. Uh, Born in Long Island originally. Uh, My family originally from New York City. My mom from the Bronx. Uh, My dad from Queens. Um, So uh, I spun back in. I had my grandmother on Delancey Street. Um, And uh, I ended up making my home in the East Village. I bounced a couple of different apartments down there. I basically lived all over the city, but mostly my home in the East Village. Uh, And uh, running around there as a kid, a teenager, getting in trouble. People don't realize the East Village back in the day was kind of like... um, you know, it was it, it was worse than a ghetto. It was a it was like there were no street lights, burned out cars on the corners. And, and what year is this you're talking? Yeah, so this really kind of all through the '70s. My dad worked in the city his whole life. He was a postman and garbage man in New York City. Uh, so you know, I've, uh, I was all there through the '70s and the '80s. But by the time I was coming to these village, it was the '80s, so like middle '80s. Um, and it's where you went for drugs and prostitution and a lot of squatting. You can go and just go into a lot of empty buildings and pick a quarter and fall asleep there. It's a whole different reality. You can't even believe like something like that was happening now. The park right there, Tompkins Square Park, was a, basically what they call the box city, just a whole park covered in cardboard boxes with people sleeping in them and no police ever kicking them out. There was no real real estate going on. It's almost like when I say it, it's like a movie. It's like you can't even believe it was really that way. Right. And, you know, I was so young at the time. I just, you know, you're born into things like that. You just took it for granted. That's just what was happening. And uh, and like anything else, like humans want to do stuff. They want to have fun. So, you know, there were guitars and there were drums and there were poets and there were, you know, uh, actors and uh, street theater was going on. So, and, you know, any kind of think, uh, freak you can come up with it was just on the streets. And uh, so I kind of became like a street person, like where today people go out or go to the movies or go to a restaurant or go to a wine bar. We went to the street. That's where all the action was. That's where all the fun was. Everything you did was literally on the street. You didn't have to have money. You didn't have to have clothes. You didn't have to have friends. You could just show up by yourself and walk the streets and completely be culturized, entertained, anything that you can imagine you could see and hear all at once. So that's my roots. That's where I came out of. Um, I ended up hanging out uh, with squat. I don't, you know, people don't realize what squats were, but... Squats kind of like where um, they, the word and the term really comes from Europe. It comes from the socialist scene out of uh, Napoli in Italy and in Berlin and Hamburg, Germany. And uh, they started to really kind of be prevalent there. And then the government started to push them around. And 
I actually know one of the original guys that ended up coming to the East Village and so, oh my God, there's a plethora of places <laughs> we can go here. And then that scene, a lot of Italians and Germans came over to the East Village and there was, so there is this kind of like weird ghetto mix of like a strong Puerto Rican, Dominican scene that was in the East Village combined with like these socialist Europeans that were coming in there. Uh, and they, they created this thing called the squat scene, where it was like squat parties, squat theater, squat happenings, and there, you know, anything could happen. It was lawlessness. The cops wouldn't go past Avenue A. So Avenue A, B, C, and D was just free on anything that you can come up with, and it, it was happening there. So I was going to all these parties and taking it all in, really just as a, like a consumer of it, you know? I was really young at the time, and um, you know, like a high school kid, and just digging it and loving it, and little by little, because uh, I had, um, you know, I played around with like mixing boards and little bit recorders. I had like a little bit of idea of sound. If they somebody got a piece of sound gear, they're like, how could we utilize this? And I would just chip in and help. Uh, and basically, that, that's the basis of sound design for theater. Like theater really is just a bunch of people who really kind of are performers, but some are better than others. So for the show to go on, someone's got to turn the lights on, turn the sound on, you need a stage manager. So, you know, that was kind of my schooling to become like a, a performance uh, technician or a theater technician. And then from there, also kind of being a performer myself, being able to play instruments, those things mixed together, and I kind of became a performer performance artist. So I would take all weird sound gear I can get my hands on and I would perform in these squats uh, and I would perform on the street and then I would kind of hook up with uh, groups of people that would do different things. We had a group called uh, Wanderlust. I had a company called Augenblick. Uh, that turned into uh, a couple of other things that went on and I was playing gigs at CBGB's and then CBGB's opened up the gallery which was next door which was a little bit more of an art thing and I did better in there and then the theater people on 4th Street, 4th Street uh, between um, Bowery and Avenue A, there's a bunch of theaters that are there. I lived on 4th Street. It was kind of like, you know, we're all neighbors and stuff. They started to hang out at CBGB's, and next thing you know, CBGB punk scene is mixing with the downtown off-Broadway theater scene, and boom, my whole world was kind of created. So I never went to school for any of this. Uh, I never read about it in a magazine. Uh, I didn't belong to any clubs. It was just purely growing up on the streets of New York City. And the sound and light and stories and vision just kind of grew organically out of it. So how does it feel being in what sounds like almost like a creative incubator slash potluck, like artistic potluck? How does that feel for, for being your, your first step into it. You know, a lot of people, you know, they decide right away, I want to be in a rock band, I want to be this and that. To, to get exposed to that swath of creative energy is, is very hard to come by now. What was it like then? Yeah, you know, it's so funny because uh, I was an oddball little kid. I definitely... You know, there was something about, I, I related more to my grandmother. My grandmother came from Italy. I was more tighter with her, with the rest of my family. And just because the way she couldn't find the things that she needed to do in the States that she could do in Italy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she kind of became, I guess the word they use now is scrappy, right? You got to 
pull things together to, <laughs> to make the mozzarella the way you want to make it, you know, and right. make the different pans and pots and pans to do the things and get the different food sources that could be the closest to the things that she wanted to cook. And I was very intrigued by that. So I kind of picked up that scrappiness. And just by luck, me just being entertained by the East Village, that scrappiness came in handy because I was able to kind of say, oh, we could use this and we could use this and we could take that. So it kind of opened up my mind. And so you make a good point because today you just go on Amazon and order exactly the thing that you think you need that somebody told you on a video to do A, B, C, D. So no, this was like really manifestation. It was like nothing was around you but garbage. And then at the end of the whole thing, you have a show with an audience. Right. So um, it's a great feeling, you know, though I don't know if I can translate it for people today because they might be repulsed by it in a weird way. You know, there's a there's a real kind of uh, pirateness to it in a way. And there was a lot of lawlessness to it. I mean, there was. Sometimes what you needed was on the other side of that fence, and you're not supposed to be on that other side of that fence. And so a lot of that was going on, too. Uh, it was There was like a gang entity, almost, in a way. Except we weren't beating each other up and getting drugs. We were doing stuff so we could put on a show, so we could have sound and lights. So um, That gorilla art. Yeah, like a gorilla art, exactly. And, and all that, like, hip-hop came out of that, and all the, all the whole idea of tagging and all that. It's all happening at the same time that I, I was down there. I was watching all that grow. I was seeing it all. I was just watching like this intense amount of dirt and filth turn into beauty. So I, to me, it felt miraculous. It, 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 I mean, I love that you asked the question because as it's coming up to me now, it felt like it's what our purpose is as human beings. Like earth is kind of dirty. And, and sometimes you do got to jump the fence. Yes, and sometimes you got to jump the fence. All these things are really what we're here to do. So I felt like I found my calling. You know, that's what it was like. Or, or the calling found me, right. maybe more. Yes, instead of me sitting home saying, one day I'm going to be this, I just went out into the world. And just it's the world always says, hey, you, you you're, you're going to be good for this. And it's, I work much better at invitation than I do than pushing myself in. And that's what the East Village did. It opened its doors to me and let me in. And those types of environments with the squatters and the lawlessness are kind of the fertile ground for those sorts of things. Yeah, and, and it's funny. It had a direct impact because what happened is, like, if I can get more specific with you, on Fort Street you have a theater called La Mama ETC. It's the Experimental Theater Company. It's ETC. It's In some ways they call themselves that because they want to own the title that they kind of invented it. Right. And now we can argue about that, but still, they're in the argument, and that's right on Fort Street in East Village, okay? And, uh, and, and a lot of these people do kind of have, you know, anything between a punk background, hippie background, you know, counterculture background was happening there. But that DIY scrappy thing is kind of the common thread? Yeah, well, in a way, yes, because they're dealing with lower budgets, they're dealing more with, like, international kind of themes, they're not Broadway bringing in hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, yes, at the end of the day, it's creativity over, like, pop aesthetic, right? It's mm -hmm. like, how creative can you be is what gets you in. And uh, what happened is that, you know, the shows that I was doing at CBGB's 
you know, my stuff had choreography, it had costumes, it had, you know, stage set design, not your typical band that was going on in there. So they saw me and right away they're like, you belong over here. So they pulled me out of there and pulled me into the theater. Uh, and then uh, I started to work. Kenji was the main sound person that was there. He was like the all-around composer, designer, sound electrician. Um, he um, ended up having some health issues, so it was put to him by the higher-ups that, you know, maybe you should start bringing some other people in that kind of can do the thing that you do. And uh, he just recognized me as some one of those people that could do it, and he brought me in. And then Ellen Stewart, who is La Mama, Ellen Stewart is the person that's named La Mama, mm-hmm. she started out with a small little kind of like artistic um, salon, cafe type of thing, and that's what blossomed in to the theater. It started with like little poetry or spoken word things and that broke into an all-out theater. She ended up winning the MacArthur Award. They hand you a million dollars and she built the Mama Theater right on 4th Street. Very cool. Yeah, so uh, so she pulled me in and started putting me in the shows. And I did that for a decade. I traveled the world as a part of the Great Jones Repertory Company. I did really crazy shows. Like um, They used to like to do Greek theater as they imagined the Greeks actually did it. So there was no electricity whatsoever. Everything was done full on with fire in the daylight and using the light change a day. And they would do it in what they believe ancient Greek. Uh, Andre Saban was the director. Elizabeth Suedos was the composer. These are people that are famous from Columbia University that analyzed what they believe actual Greek theater must have been by doing uh, anthropology and archeology span and then converting that into theater. So this is the world I grew up in. Very cool. Yeah, it's very different than, you know, like uh, Damn Yankees on Broadway or something, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, so I kind of grew up in this uh, eclectic environment of taking conceptual thoughts and building them together and then devising a show out of just anything you can come up with and try to make it away and then just hoping an audience comes and is open-minded to it. Like, that's the premise of what's going on. And I ended up, uh, they ended up booking these giant tours all over Europe where we would perform literally in the ruins of Greek and Roman amphitheaters. That's wild. <sighs> and this was, what? when was this? So this is 80s into 90s. Okay. And your primary role, you were doing front of house yeah. and sound design with that? No, not at all. There is no front of house. There is oh. no sound design. Yeah. I was performance Oh, you're, you're yeah, okay. I'm okay. in the performance, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. okay. But uh, when the shows weren't on the road and they weren't touring, there was the theater, and I was hanging around where there was front of house and there were speakers, and little by little, I started to create my own little shows that I was interested in. So I kind of brought this kind of electronic theater we're jumping a little ahead now, kind of yeah. like the theater that I do now, which has a, a lot of tech that's involved. I'm kind of the, one of the first people to bring it in there as far as a show. It was maybe used as far as like what the theater had to offer, but where I was actually using sound design as the theme of the show, as the concept of the show. I was one of the first people doing it. Now, tons of people are doing it. Right. So talk to me a little bit how your sound design transitions from using acoustic instruments and things that you had seen in the East Village maybe prior on in the bands and things like that to when you start to get into electronic music and things go digital and the sound design starts to take on a whole nother role. Um, with the sculptures and things of that nature. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 a hard one to answer because we kind of have to go way back, and you'll get a kick out of this. So, uh, so what happened to me is that um, 
I definitely had compositions in my head. I hear music in my head ever since a kid. I'm one of those little kids that's singing all the time. <laughs> I was always singing some kind of melody, and everybody would say, what's that song? It was my song. Right. I, I, my song. I was always, it's my song. It's the song I'm working on. And at one point, it started to become like, all right, I can't sleep at night because this song is just going in my head. And I got the idea I have to get it out of my head. So uh, in the family, we had a little tape recorder where you hit the button, and I just started to sing into the tape recorder. I see that as the beginning of my sound design career right there because yeah. the second I did that, I was in. <laughs> I was the button and the making the sound and playing that back. Nothing. And you changed. could describe that tape recorder to me, I bet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a realistic <laughs> um, it, flat tape recorder. It's got the sliding handle, one red button for record that you hit at the same time with the play. Yep. And then you okay. hit rewind and then hit play back at you, and that's what you got. Um, so I love that thing, but, the, but I didn't like the sound of the speaker. So uh, I, got myself, I got my hands on a stereo um, boombox boom type of thing. Before they were calling it a boombox. It was just a, another level recorder, right? It, mm -hmm. it just had more of a uh, frequency range than it just that, that little thing just sounded like you were talking in a telephone. Yeah. So I got one of those, and, uh, and that held me for a little while. But I got the idea, what if I take that crappy tape recorder and I record on the good recorder and then I record what I recorded back onto the crappy tape recorder and then I started to bounce back and forth. And that's when the floodgate opens. And then I was like, okay, I realized I hear everything. I hear the bass line, I hear the guitar line, I hear the keyboard line, I hear the whole thing. And I, and I don't know why, but I just knew not everybody else was hearing the whole thing. And how old are you at this point? Uh, it's like elementary school. So this is pre-going to the East Village oh, and yeah, Sydney. Totally. Okay. I already Good. had this. So, um, so when I started to go and figure out, okay, I got to figure out this instrument thing, and I went and observed my sister at the time was going out with a guy in a band. <laughs> Perfect. So I asked her, could you bring me to a rehearsal? So I'm already thinking. I'm already in my head, I'm on research. So it's also what a sound designer does. Like, if I hear a sound in my head and I don't know what the instrument is, I start listening to all different cultures, all different things. I try to find, what, is there an instrument that actually makes this sound? Um, so or I'm already doing that then. So I was curious because, you know, I listen to records and I have the idea, but I don't really know what's, like, what's it take. Like, what's it take to make that sound? So she did. She had a boyfriend in a band. I went to go see the band, and they had two guitars, a bass player, a keyboard player, and a drummer. And when they took a break, they allowed me to go in there and just, uh, you know, they could see I was curious. And, you know, they, oh, you want to you wanna check it out? I would go up to the guitar, and, you know, I couldn't play the guitar, but I got it. You put your finger here, you move it here. Those are the <laughs> sound notes. Sound comes out. Sound comes out. I know that's the note I hear. My, I knew how to find the note. Same with the bass guitar. Same with the keyboard. I got it. You put your finger on that, you find the note you're looking for. Now, I understand somebody, if they don't hear the note in their head, that's going to seem complicated. How do you make music? For me, it was simple. From that note to that note, because that's where I want to go. It was the drums that I did not understand. When I sat down on the drums, I was like, I don't, I don't hear these. What is this? I can't, I can't hear a melody in my head. I can't hear a harmony. What is this? So that attracted me. The hardest one of all attracted me. So... I started with the drums, I started with percussion, I started hitting things, I started to really get into that. So I kind of moved away a little bit from sound, and I put a bunch of hard years into really studying drums, practicing drums, 
getting drum teachers, learning the rudiments, joining bands, and rocking and rolling. And, uh, and through there, that got me into start playing bands in the city. You know, I'm in New York, you really want to do a great gig, you got to play. In the, I already knew about CBGBs, I already knew about Bleecker Street, I already knew about the Cat Club and the China Club. I knew all these places that I could play because I was, I was going to see shows. I was going to Madison Square Garden and seeing bands there. So I knew the whole kind of music scene in New York City, and I knew that's where you needed to be. So I just started going and auditioned for bands and just getting in bands and doing that. Um, and, and at the same time, when I was hanging out in the East Village, that's where I knew I had a little bit of a musical inclination, and that's how I was able to add that. So those two things kind of happened at the same time. Where it started to really become like a sound design thing, is it's hard to pinpoint, but um, I saw a, a conceptual dance artist called Pina Bausch at Brooklyn BAM. I don't know if you know who that is. She's gone now, but she's an incredible artist. And I knew nothing about dance. If you said something about dance to me, I thought it was do the hustle <laughs> or like, you know, ballroom or something like right. that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, uh, hanging out with, you know, people in the East Village, you're going to get some cultured stuff that you're going to see. So somebody brought me to... Uh, to to a Brooklyn theater, and I got to see an uh, amazing choreographer called Pina Bausch. She's from Germany, and she just did this thing that made no sense to me, and I was like, that's what I want to do. And, and it so, was like an interpretive dance type thing? Yeah, totally experimental dance, interpretive dance, conceptual, basically conceptual art. So the whole way the sound is interpreted, the way the set's interpreted, it's all, you know, nothing at that moment that I could describe other than like pure beauty, no rules, nothing I've seen on the TV before, nothing I've heard on the radio. It was just super eclectic, super right-brainy, you know what I mean? Like, really just pure expression. And uh, that, something clicked in there. And then when I came back and I just saw the band with the drummer here, the guitar player here, the bass player here, the singer there, the lights here, the speakers here, and the audience there, I just said, nah, I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, and then I, I really delved in and started to kind of get together with collaborators, you know, mostly in the East Village and mix it up with people. Um, and then uh, I started to get like, you know, um, they, like I said, a little bit, they were kind of like, it's hard to describe them. They were, it was almost like gangs, you know, everybody was like an individual artist, poet, orator, Theologist, everyone was like, everything had meaning that they were doing. It wasn't just to rock out, you know? All the meaning was coming through everything. So, you know, I started to play around with this idea. I got this idea of uh, the concept that came to me was Augenblick. It's a German word. You're going to find it. I, I kind of go a lot to European aesthetics mm -hmm. because, uh, and I don't know why. I Again, I think it comes back to my grandmother. That's what I was going to ask. My grandmother. Right. Something about just American taste just wasn't enough for me. It was something about the olive oil and the garlic, <laughs> you know, the first cold pressing olive oil as opposed to like vegetable oil. Right. Like it did something to my brain, you know, so everything had to have that old world flavor. Um, so something about language, too, was in there, something about fashion, uh, something about aesthetic. I guess aesthetic itself, right? Right. And, and, and believe me, I love, I love America. I love the idea of America. I love the idea that we're all Americans. Germans are Germans. I can never be a German. Right. I love that, that idea. <laughs> but I love that I can, as an American, take that Germanness and mix it into my Americanness. I love that idea because then it just throws my thing off a little bit. And then I did the same with, you know, I got very interested, first very interested in 
uh, Western European uh, aesthetic, and then it shifted over to Eastern European aesthetic. But you know, to bring that back, something about, like I said, that flavor, getting that in there. I loved how European languages, um, Slavic languages, Romantic languages, really use metaphor in the way that they're communicating. And that was a vehicle for me. I, I found, I love the meaning of words and the etymology of words and, the, and going back and finding like the origin of words. It really turns me on. And I can make a whole show based on that. So that drew me into different languages. And uh, I discovered this word, Augenblick, after reading Faust, which mm -hmm. is a, a book written in German. It's a Goethe book. Uh, it's a great book. If you've never read it before, I recommend it because uh, it's deep. It's uh, and, and a lot of folklore and myth is really comes from it. It's like a, bo a Bible of folklore and myth. Right. Uh, and it's got so many metaphors in it that we use today constantly in movies and shows that people don't realize really or originated from there. So uh, the thing that Faust was asking the devil for was the Augenblick. And um, basically, the way the Germans use that word, it's like, um, in its rawest sense, it's a blink of an eye. That means like when you, we use it a little bit like oh, he was gone in a blink of an eye, right? Mm -hmm. So they use Augenblick way. Like when you have an idea come to you and it just hits you, you go Augenblick, all right? Or if you just miss something, it was just, someone said, oh, look, and you turn it and it's over. You, Augenblick, I just missed it. Um, it could be, a, a, and the way Faust was asking for it is like the, the epiphany of understanding everything in a moment. Mm. Augenblick, I got it. I get it now. I understand. So something about that, I love that concept of it. So I created an art group called Augenblick. And basically I would just bring in different artists and kind of start to talk about this concept and how can we turn that into, like, what is your Augenblick? You know, what is your Faustian myth? And then I really started to play around with this idea of myths and bringing mythology into this whole thing and just creating these shows. So I was naturally brought me into this whole La Mama thing of what they were doing with these Greek theaters because it's the same thing. I never learned it in school. Right. Nobody ever taught it to me. It was just happening naturally in my mind. I think one thing that might have happened is that, um, and I, this relates a lot to, I think, young kids today with the internet and on the phone, is that, and I don't know why I did it, but I remember one day when I was, I, I don't know, maybe four years old, we got a knock on our, uh, the door of our house, and it was an uh, uh, encyclopedia salesman. <laughs> and my dad bought the encyclopedia. <laughs> and I was obsessed with it. I read it from A to Z. That was my favorite thing. I would start in A, and I just loved the idea of just going through this whole thing. It was like my internet. Hey, I do the same thing now with the internet, just searching stuff. So I just think going through it every once in a while, whenever I would come to a mythology and something was going on in school, you have to do a book report. I would always do book reports on like mythology. I was writing that stuff. So I kind of like self-educated myself on it. And little did I know that that's really the basis of theater is mythology. Right. Yeah. And then from there, I also got into a lot of, uh, I love uh, archaeology. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an archaeologist, like dinosaurs, like everybody does. But it wasn't just the idea of the roar of the dinosaur. I liked the idea that they lived millions of years ago and that you could dig them up and find their bones. So I was digging holes all over the place all the time. <laughs> so I also had this anthropology uh, kind of history idea. I like to look at things from the past, idea of the future, and how can I bring them into the Augenblick or the 
present or the present, how I like to say it. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of making all these things a now. Another use of the word Augenblick, it means now. Germans can say, when do you want to do it? Augenblick, right now. So I like this idea of the moment in the present, this whole idea. And um, that seemed to be whatever that thing is that I have, it attracts artists to collaborate with me. And I'm, I always just have different people to collaborate. And then all my little things that I was doing just turned into bigger, bigger collaborations. And now I have collaborations that have been going on for years. Uh, Temporary Distortion is like one of my main collaborators. This is with Ken Kenneth Collins, who's a very successful, another performance artist, director, uh, conceptual, uh, creative, does a million different things. He's at um, Iowa State University now, basically teaching AI as a creative uh, process to students. So he's my partner for 17 years that we've been collaborating, making works. Uh, touring the world with them. Uh, I have my different music projects that I do. Um, I have Sons of Venus. We just released our third album, uh, which is doing re really well. It's on a subs subsidiary of... Um, of uh, of uh, oh, what's that? I'm forgetting the name of the label right now. I'm blanking out. We'll come back to that. Uh, well, one thing I wanted to ask that is kind of interesting to me, because I know you were around at the time when, when the environment you're in makes a real shift. And I'm interested in what it's like because uh, I've, I think that there's a big value in having these incubators for artists culturally, even if it means societally we've got a bunch of squats and untoward behavior by some people's judgment. But that untoward behavior definitely was a... Uh, uh, a fertile ground for you to experience all kinds of things that have led you into some of these other things that are up now that I, I definitely want to get into. But I'm curious what it's like as you watch the transition in real time from the creatives and the lawlessness, for lack of a better term, being pushed out by money and a change of tide uh, as it is people's um, feelings towards what the arts are bringing, because I know that the, the art community was supported at one point. We, we have had times where these things have been more outwardly supported than just swept under the rug. But at one point, your, your environment changes and gets swept out completely. And I'm curious how that was in real time. Uh, yeah, I love the question. I appreciate the question. In my case, it could be a can of worms <laughs> because it's like uh, there's a there's a duality there for me. I, on one level, um, as an artist, I don't want to change anything. I want the world to be free to be whatever it is now. Everything that's happening now, everything that happened then, don't change a thing. Let it be what it wants to be and let me do my thing. You do your thing. They do their thing. Uh, and then it's the other side of me that just would desperately love to change the world and right. make it a different place. I struggle. That's a big struggle. Um, so on one instance, you are correct that that lawlessness and that, uh, for lack of a better word, that kind of economic uh, situation uh, was a godsend in a weird way that allowed us to be creative. But at the same time, you know, people want to change the world and they want people to rise up and not live that way. So did, did people's lives really get better? And is it not really that poor anymore? And it's the same people there now that they're richer? That's a crazy conversation. Did they get shoveled up 
and thrown somewhere else, like in New Jersey or something, there's a possibility there. Like right. it's all kind of disappeared. And I can I can be really specific with you with my story. Uh, it's a little bit of both. Uh, in some ways, I was lucky in that I did get pulled into a theater. I did end up on Broadway. I did do sound design for big Broadway shows. Um, so my life did raise up a little bit. Um, uh, so, but that didn't happen for everybody, right? And, and that wasn't everybody's destiny either. You know, they, they, you know, I wasn't there really just for the drugs. I wasn't there for the lawlessness. I really wanted to create something. There were people there that were creating things, but at the end of the day, they wanted to be naughty. That was their main thing. So I get it. I see that there's a problem there. And then you had people who came in. You know, uh, you know, this could be very controversial, but just to show you how far I can go with trying to be understanding, you know, Giuliani came in, Rudolph Giuliani came in as the mayor of New York as, with a job to do, and they told him what they wanted to be done, and the guy did it. Whether right. you like how he did it, what he did, he came in and he did it. You know, he really did. You know, it, it, it was an amazing thing. You know, New York City is as a, a liberal, democratic city as you can get anywhere in the world, right. and this Republican came in and you know, made all those people richer, way richer. It's very confusing. But, yeah, he got rid of all of us, and he got rid of that whole scene that went down. Uh, but, you know, what does he care? He's just hired to do a job, and he just did the job. Right. Now, before then, when all this stuff was going on, I saw a lot of nasty stuff, too. I mean, a lot of nasty stuff, a lot of really bad drug addiction, a lot of death, a lot of, uh, you know, abuse, uh, like— brain-burning poverty, right. you know, stuff that you just, you, nobody should see. I've seen it, you know. This is where the crack houses were and the stab houses were, like, you know, the shooting galleries where, you know, people are having needles in their arm and it's just, like, floors and floors and floors of just people. Just there is like, kind of some weird connection between that depravity and desperation and, and the genuine art, is there not? Yeah, but like I said, so, like, where, where you know, at one point I want everyone's life to be better, right. but at the same time, like— where where do I stand in that? It's re it's really hard to say. That's why I try to get in the center of it. Right. And there there has to be some kind of like, you know, the the world is going to do what it's going to do. It's there's always going to be wars. There's always going to be poverty. There's always going to be these things. What I'm hoping is that the artist and I just I call it out to the artist because not everyone needs to be an artist or should be an artist I get it they have their life they have to do I'm not putting them on it right. but if somebody's got the calling to be an artist then you've got to make the art you know uh, that's the activism is making the art and I feel like that that gets lost that gets lost sometimes it comes back and then it gets lost and it comes back the activism is making the art and that's that's what I felt and that's what I saw that was going on. That was the activism. We were in the shit, so we made the art, and that rose everybody up. That's the hand-in-glove part. Yes. So, you know, whether it was supposed to be that way, I don't know. Whether it should go back to that way, I don't know. Are things better now? I don't know. Um, to flip the switch a little bit, I can tell you why it can't be. Uh, it's because of the phone. There's no way that, that phone is ubiquitous. And that phone is a leveling playing field. Like, we, no one there had any kind of technology like that for the whole world to see. But right. now if you ever had some kind of incubator that was going on like that, like a mushroom growing underneath the soil that no one knows about, you're going to bring the phone in, and in two seconds the whole world sees it. It's never going to grow. It's, that fungus is never going to make those roots for that whole scene to come out. 
So I think that's what's different now. The incubator's now inside the phone. And that may be part of what's striking me is the analogous portion to Brixton and, like, the Clash and the underground punks that were squatters and, and what became, like, a second running of it there. And they almost had the same fate, just in a different—those stories are pretty analogous. Perfectly said. You got it 100%. And, and what it happened to me and, and, and artists like me, we started to turn and we started to get pulled into the technology. Okay, so that's what I want to ask you. Yes. So now at some point it starts to be kind of evident to everybody we're in a scramble for high ground. Some people aren't going to make it for whatever reason, and some people are for whatever reason. And one of the reasons that you did is because you were a very early adopter of a piece of software called Ableton. I noticed. So I'm very curious of how that was for you, and what was what was the thought in your head when you're like, you know what, I'm just making the hard turn. I'm doing this software thing. My high ground has got zeros and ones. Here I go. It's very embarrassing because I did it as slow as anybody could do it. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> Even though I was right on the forefront, I can't tell you how slow it was. So I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, so in the in the 80s, I was, um, you know, the, the 80s, I was, <laughs> it's not a clear, like when everyone, everyone looks back and they're like, oh, this is the 70s, this is the 80s, this is the 90s. When you're there and it's happening to you, it's nothing like <laughs> yeah, that. Right. It's nothing right. like that at all. So for me, the 80s began in the 60s. <laughs> That's how I look at it, nice. right? You know, like yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you know the the first time you you know you're hearing hooked on Bach or something, you know, like when you heard a synthesizer, or you're you know you see 2001 Space Odyssey, you know, like love me some Wendy Carlos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you understand, like all that stuff to me, the, uh, the, all the 80s was already all there in the 60s. Gotcha. You know? um, so I always held on to, and I always had, I always had affinity to that. I love Star Trek. I love this whole idea of futurism. So, and I always love the sound of futurism, and that's why I, I, you know, for me, like people don't realize, like it's so strange today that people look at look at the punks as futurists, but they weren't. They wanted to go back to the fifties. People don't realize the futurists were Yes and Genesis and the progressive bands and all these people went. The punks were the conservatives, man. They yes. were the ones that wanted to go back. And people are so confused now. And it was like all these like really asexual type of bizarre space being progressive rockers that were like really focused on putting everything into the music and having no political ideology whatsoever right trying to make a future within the sound to me that's the 80s Interesting. that's really what it was so i really was torn because at the same time you know i was i, I loved you know original garage rock original surf music, which is the beginning, I think, of like the punk aesthetic and a lot of ways that you played the guitar, the way that you were getting sounds from the guitar. I was a big fan of all that. And then obviously when it turned into like a, a real turn in me was the New York Dolls. When mm -hmm. the New York Dolls happened, that's when I was like, anything is possible. Of course, uh, Velvet Underground, Andy Warhol, The Doors, like The Doors, somewhere The Doors is the whole thing. The Doors is to me almost the centripetal force of punk, of progressive, of art, right. of poetry, of electronica, of blues. The doors are like... They're a unique crossroads yeah, for that time, for really sure. Yeah, they are really the pinnacle of pulling almost everything together. And I was obsessed with the doors. They were, they were my thing. And then the, a lot of that led to, you know, like, you know, this a lot of this British progressive music that came out. And I got really pulled into a lot of that. So, um... 
I started to get a little synthesizer here and there. I started to build a little collection of uh, synth analog synths. And, and get, where do you get exposed to electronic music first? Oh, records. Yeah, I, the record store was my play. My first technology was record. I had a record player, I put the records on, and I would just play records, records, and I would save my nickels and dimes every birthday, every Christmas. Everything I asked for from everybody was albums. I had my list. I would they would hang on my wall, and I would cross them out so people could look and see what was t what was off and what was on there. Nice. And it was everywhere. I loved everything. I love folk music. I love roots music. I love progressive music. I love jazz, blues. I love all uh, anything that's on there. Uh, I love the music my parents were listening to. I love the music my older brothers were listening to. I love the music my sister was listening to. I just there was all kinds of music. Mu there was a lot of music I didn't like either, which where I realized really was like commercial music, like real pop radio. I was not a fan of. I liked this new FM radio that nobody knew what was going on. FM was brand new. Everything I was there when AM shifted over to FM. Interesting. So again, that's a technology thing. Right. That's a huge difference. You're hearing stuff in stereo. People are playing longer form. We're sitting here talking like this. That's where that started there. Fidelity was much higher. Yeah, way better. So people really got into no more singles. That's where the single, the 45 turned into album. Right. I watched this whole thing happen. You know, I watched the record turn into the 8-track, turn into the cassette, turn into the CD. All that going So through. the idea that you weren't going to be able to stick around, you were going to have to transition with the times was nothing new. Just going right, all rolling right into that. I knew that this, I knew this year was this year, and next year was going to be a whole other thing. And, uh, and, and I got on that tempo. I got on that. Uh, and not only that, I went from the drums. Like I said, I really focused on the drums. But uh, being a drummer in New York City, I tell you, all your drummers in New York City, you guys are heroes. Because that's <laughs> the hardest gig, getting your car robbed and broken into, uh, your drums stolen, trying to move the gear in and out and finding park and doing a gig, <laughs> and just hauling the stuff while the lead singer goes right to the bar. Yep. You guys are heroes. I did that gig at one point. I was like... I'm going to try harmonica for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And then what that led to is me <clears throat> no worries. What that led to is me playing all different instruments. So not only did the technology change, but my instruments started to change. I started to become a multi-instrumentalist. I was able to live as a musician because if there was a drum gig available, I could take it. If there was a bass gig available, I could take it. If there was a guitar gig available. So I started playing with all different musicians, started to play keyboard available, and then little by little, you know, if they didn't really need, like, um, it started to happen a little bit in the 80s, is that you maybe didn't really need a real keyboard player, like somebody who was a proper trained piano player. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to do something like if you were doing songs like by the cars or something like that, you really just needed the sound. Right. And then you could really do a lot of double stops. And as long as you can have one hand playing like a double stop or a small chord, another hand turning the filter. And I, was, I picked up on that right away. So I started to get little gigs where I could just hold the chord down and go, <laughs> and the magic was made. Yeah, yeah, and, and people hear that right away. They, oh, that sounds like the record, right? So all of a sudden, if you were able to bring in electronic sounds, so I started to collect sounds, like things that made sounds. I just started to do it. Anything, I just started to get junk of sounds, all different drums, all weird guitars, and then keyboards, synthesizers, and then started to turn into drum machines, and then it started to turn into samplers. But everything was kind of, um, 
I was running everything analog. I had an analog sequencer that you would put the numbers in, right. and then you would take a MIDI cable, and you would have a MIDI con uh, conductor that you would program and make sure all the numbers matched in, and then you would hit go on the sequencer, and that would play your bass line on a 303. It would play your drum line. One of the on, best piece of gear ever. Yeah, yeah, side. of course. Uh, on a, it would play your drum beat on whether a 909, 808, 707, uh, all the multiple ones that were out there. Um, and then you could also play uh, your arpeggiator on your synthesizer. So I was doing that. I had that set up, and I would have that set up in my my recording studio. And then I had uh, two uh, tape machines, reel-to-reel tape machines. They were floor mount ones. Um, that there, I got from a buddy of mine who worked at a, at a TV edit, editing studio. I can't remember the name. Famous place that closed. And I was able to get two 8-track machines that I could sync together to have um, uh, 16 channels. And I would run that in there, and I would make rhythm tracks into analog tape. And that's what I would do for years. Uh, this, the MIDI... The MIDI interface and the sequencer drove me nuts. It drove me crazy programming that thing. I hate but it. But this was the brains of anything at that time. That's how everybody for, had to do it. For people that don't know, there was zero computer involved at this point. Yes, yes. Uh, but little by little, computers started to come in. Um, but it was just another headache the way that I saw it. When they started to program it, I forget the little Apple, the little Apple computer. When they started to do MIDI programming on there, yep. But now that's where Ableton comes in because these guys were looking at that and saying, "Okay, there's some, there's something here. There's something we can do." Mm. So speed it up a little bit, uh, getting to the end of the '90s, uh, and then basically what happened is, um, I pretty much when Ableton started, like what they did great was MIDI, right? So that's. What I was interested in them for was more for controlling my MIDI. That's what it was. But I was doing everything else analog. Compared to other DAWs at the time. Yes. They could do MIDI. And it ran on a laptop. Right. I didn't have to have a full station. So I didn't have a full station because my studio was analog, but I had a laptop. So I could put Ableton on that laptop. I have the disc. I have the, the I still have it. It's the one Ableton One disc. That's a treasure. You should I probably have that framed. It. Yeah, I love it. I still have that first one. And um, but what happened is that every year they would improve on it and they would add things to it. So where it started as a little thing running the MIDI back here, it just started to move more and more up in front in my studio. So it was like years it took to where it actually was recording my tracks. Because that mid-90s, late-90s period, that's a real time of flux, right, where you're seeing some guys that are still doing it straight-up hardware yep. with your clock, yep. some guys that are doing it with a tower computer, yep. bringing the whole studio on stage, yep. doing the whole live PA, couple mixers, whole Megillah, and then and then the, the real edge is you've got this on a laptop. Yes. And uh, and the other thing that I started to see was when they bring the sampler on stage. The Curse Wild was coming up on stage, and people started to do everything from a workstation, which also Ableton was taking taking in the idea of a workstation, taking all these different things that were going on. You had the Roland, kind of little Roland uh, recording work, digital workstation, which kind of turned into the digital boards we have today. So all that was going on at the same time. So the, a lot of people were also doing a lot of stuff like on one single keyboard. The Kurzweil was amazing when it first came out. Uh, and that's Ray Kurzweil, everybody. You're the right. Guy that's legend status. Isn't that insane? So right. like all these early super hip records, this guy is like, wouldn't happen if it wasn't for him. Tons of his technology. Isn't that wild? It still blows my mind to this day that that keyboard, you know, it was a Kurzweil. 
So, um, so yeah, so I started to notice like people were capturing samplers into keyboards and then dumping a little bit what we talked about before was uh, Recycler was mm -hmm. what I remember when I started to hear people chopping up beats. And this is when dance tracks and raves and the squat start to turn more into that. Definitely. What's that like? Yeah, so um, so I'm a huge James Brown fan. Uh, James Brown to me is the highest pinnacle of what you know rhythmic music really is. Uh, you know, still to this day, if I, if I'm spinning a set and it could be like the most perfect up-to-date mastered recording that is just blasting the 20k low frequencies out of the subwoofers <laughs> ripping everybody's head off i can still throw in this you know james brown track that sounds like this and nobody stops dancing no it's all about the fuel you know what i mean so it's all about the way those beats are constructed all that so i was always a big fan of that and uh yeah i heard that i heard these guys had that they had that james brown thing with the sampler and the programming. They got whatever that pull and tug, those twos and threes, those swings, they were just doing that. So I didn't understand yet, but I was hearing the Oh, okay, so we're talking breakbeats. Breakbeats, yes. I was hearing all that stuff coming out of them that they were doing with the recycler. Um, and at first when it came out, that's all it was. It was just beats. Yeah. People were just partying the beats. Then a baseline if you were lucky. Yeah, and then little The 303. Bit, yeah, yeah. And and it's so funny like now when you're hearing all the trap stuff and you're just hearing the uh, the 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 overtone of the of the the drum as the baseline, that was happening naturally cuz the speakers were just overtoning. Right. If you played it back on the headphones, it wouldn't sound anything like that. It just sounded like But then we would play it through these like terrible giant wood cabinets that you know really weren't to spec at all and they would overtone so the kick drum would just boom boom well a lot of that stuff too at that time you're talking was on more like sound systems akin to like jamaica style yes yeah yeah so the sound systems right exactly big box horns Big uh, homegrown twenty-one inch subs. Yes, yeah, super subs. You know, basically people building them themselves. So these right. things are rattling. You know, it, that was the original sound, which is like what people are kind of reproducing in their cars now. Like when you hear them drive by, that type of vibe, that type of sound. But those frequencies weren't necessarily in the recorded music. It was really because the sound system was was reproducing it that way. And then the venue itself was just shaking and vibrating. So that whole idea, and you know, what we before we even called it jungle or drum and bass, we called it bass music because it just the bass was just shaking everything. So that's what I remember. I just remember that, and the, what that reminded me of was James Brown. That's how I related to it. That's really interesting. So all of a sudden, when I would go to band practice or do my band gigs, I was a little bored. And when I would go to the club and I would hear this bass music, I was jazzed big time. Um, so I started to do it. I started to, you know, start creating the music. I started to bring, you know, since on stage and little by little, the drum kit got weirder and weirder and weirder until it wasn't your typical drum kit. It became more like percussion and stuff that would lay over the 
the playback beat, whether it was being played back, whether it was being played by a machine, whatever was done. So all of a sudden, and then the bass started to become more of a frequency than really a person playing a bass. And then maybe I'd bring a didgeridoo guy in instead, you know, like just try to find other sounds in there and then just let the core of what the track was going on happen. Now, that's different than what DJs were doing. DJs were just showing up with the material and then just going to a club and blowing that up. And spinning records at this time. Spinning records at this time. That's what they were doing. They were just spinning the records. That was much more popular than what I was doing, where I was actually trying to recreate the stuff on stage. Uh, the people who took that to the most pinnacle was a group called Nerve. I don't mm-hmm. know if you ever heard of them. Jojo Mayer, do you know who he yeah. is? Mm-hmm. So that was his old band back in the day. Okay. And again, not German, but Austrian. You know? Right, yeah, yeah. It's so weird, right? That they're, they're always kind of at the forefront They're of coming it. up with it. Yeah, they're coming up with it all the time. So he was the first guy that I saw that was go- went back to the drum set, to the bass player, to the guitar player and the keyboard player, but now you're recreating the sounds Recycler makes. Playing that live break beat. Playing that live break beat, doing all that stuff. So I saw all that whole thing go down. Now at the same time, a little bit later than that, not in the 80s, but in the 90s, I started to go over to Europe. I mean, I was going to Europe in the 80s, but I wasn't quite going to Brixton yet and going to those areas. So a little bit later, I ended up going to Brixton where all this stuff was coming out of and that's where it was all blowing up in a completely different way. Um, But then it was weird. It was like Brixton was similar. Like you would go to Brixton and this stuff was packing the clubs. But then you would go over to the pond to Amsterdam and, you know, house music and uh, progressive and everything else everybody else was doing. And it wasn't really getting out there yet. You know, it was kind of just living in Brixton. And then the same when you'd come to uh, downtown New York. It was kind of living in downtown New York. But if you went up to Boogie Down Bronx or you went up to Brooklyn, you weren't hearing it. It was just like in these little areas where it was. So I always kind of stayed in that world. It blew up a little bit more in Europe. It kind of mixed into the music, more music there. Right. Um, I guess in the States, it kind of morphed into the rave scene. Yes. But that, but when it got into the rave, it didn't have that James Brown thing anymore. It kind of lost that. I don't know what it was. You know, maybe just the, the, the clientele of the people who started to make the music changed. I'm You're not- saying you, the, some of the swing turns into more straight yes. four fours. Totally. Right. And now they're taking a lot of the aesthetic of the sounds, of the jungle sounds, and the drum and bass sound, and having the tone, but the rhythm is not the same. And I would find, like, I, I stuck to it. I was, I'm going to stick to that rhythm. That's the rhythm I want to do. And I could see, like, the majority of people just didn't take to it. They didn't take to it. Um, but I didn't want to stop doing it. So what I started to do is let me bring performers into it. So now you're coming to see a performance. So I started to use breakbeat, drum and bass, bass music, um, jungle as sound design for my crazy shows that I was doing. That was the aesthetic of the show. And then the characters would be built around it. Uh, And then I started to set up more digital systems, like almost like a sound designer, where I had a digital board, I had samplers, and I was running samplers. Uh, I had CD players that I could program, like CDJs, but before CDJs. And I started to make music that way. But instead of just doing it as the music and the people dancing, the people were kind of sitting in seats, and then it became almost thematic music. Gotcha. And then what happened is then theatrical people dug that, and they brought me in. And now I could make money doing what I was doing, as opposed to becoming like a popular DJ. 
Okay, so that's something I wanted to ask you about. I saw a performance that you did where you were doing part with a with a gentleman's sculpture. It was like a X with some lights and a bunch of guitars on it. Talk to me how you make it from, okay, we're in drum and bass now, but now we're going to start going into real more experimentation. And when you get the ability to broaden your horizons and take in even more different people like this, because this sort of gives way to what, your time and temporal distortion becomes right. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So I, I would like I'd like for you to tell me a little bit about working with the sculptures and the sound design and this open invitation to meditate to sound because I think that's a super very cool idea. Uh, just as an aside, um, and then I want to talk a little bit more about temporal distortion. Yeah. So yeah. So, uh, yeah um, so what happened is I was not the show that I created the Augenblick the group that I had I. Uh, what I wanted to do was make music, make sound design, and do the sound. But since I was the creator of it, I also had to direct it. Uh, and I did it for five years, and I just couldn't direct anymore. I wanted to focus on the sound. It's what I do best. I'm more of an audio person than I am a visual person. So I knew I needed to up the game in that level, and it wasn't me to do it. So I started to consciously look for a director. I was hip to the scene now. I know what was going on in theater, downtown performance. I wasn't a novice anymore. People knew me. I got what was going on. I got the lineage of it. I wasn't a novice like when I first got into it. I kind of, like, because I was really invited in into a world I didn't know. But then as time went on, I got, to, I, I got the lay of the land. So now I turned around and I said, I'm going to go back to that community and I'm going to find somebody that, uh, that would like to work with me on this level. So I'm a very collaborative person. That's how I like to work. I love to collaborate with people. I love, I love my thing with somebody else's thing more than it just being my thing. Greater than the sum of its parts. Yes, I, just, uh, I get a better feeling when it's that way. There's, there's something there about it, you know? Mm -hmm. Again, it, back to my, maybe my grandmother with the family type of thing, but it just feels more complete when I have that. So I started to search for that and I found somebody. Uh, uh, you know, it just to bring the technology back into it, you know, back in the day, we used to have these things called chat rooms. <laughs> <laughs> I know about that. <laughs> so I was in a theater chat room just seeing, like, what was going on. And uh, just from just scouring the thing, I saw a picture of a sculptor that was really interesting to me. And uh, it was posted by this guy named Kenneth Collins. So we just started a conversation about the photograph that he posted, literally. What is this? Where is this? Why did you post this? So we had this beautiful conversation about sculpture. That's exactly how a collaborator with me should start. Right. You know, he doesn't know what I do. He doesn't know anything about <laughs> me. I don't know anything about him. And we're talking about a, a sculpture. Right. And it's a great conversation. And then, uh, so we continued this correspondence. And he learns that I'm a sound designer. And he's like, oh, I'm a theater director. Uh, I'm working on a show right now. I'm having a little trouble with the guy who's kind of handling the music and the sound. Maybe you can come and help us. Uh, and that was the first show that we did together. It's called Welcome to Nowhere. Um, Love that title. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was great. It was kind of like based off like road movies, you know, back in the day. So mm -hmm. these type of... Uh, uh, in the middle of the desert type road movies with nefarious things going on. Yeah. And, uh, and we clicked. He dug where I was coming from. I dug where he was coming from. And we just made shows after shows. The company got quite popular. We ended up touring around the world. Uh, and uh, in a lot of ways, I became not only like a big 
temporary distortion fan, but uh, really dedicated to the project. And what are you doing in the shows? What is the performance? So, Describe to me the performance. A little. So me, I'm in that. I am a proper sound designer and composer. So I'm actually not in the performances yet. Gotcha. So there are actors, and there's dialogue, and there's text, and there's video, and there's okay. and there's narrative, and there's a there's a narrative, and there's a there's an arc. It's in a way kind of a play, but a little bit more technically orientated, but still kind of a play. Gotcha. Um, and not necessarily my thing. So now instead of getting someone to do my thing, I'm kind of doing temper distortions thing. Uh, as this goes on, me and Kenneth, the director, we get closer and closer and closer. And as we get closer, I learn he's very similar to me. He's like, man, I would love to get out of this narrative stuff. Ah. I, I would love to get more experimental. I'm like, well, that's my whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> the door I opens. That, I got the whole <laughs> thing right over here. So we started to collaborate on that level. And eventually, um, I mean, full credit to him because he busted in the door one day and just said, we're going to do it. We're going to make a transition. Uh, and then we did. And we radically transferred uh, the company. Uh, I'm missing a little part of the story, I should say. We ended up radically transforming the company over to being very sound oriented and then bringing my performance uh, aspect back into it. But how that happened is because, as a sign, as, just so people know how a sound designer works, is that you know, you're usually working with a producer and a director of a play uh, or some kind of show. Um, and usually the director and the producer in, in, in European circles and starting to happen now in the States, you have a dramaturg. And this is the team that gets together and chooses what the play is, what's it about, what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it smells like, what the audience is, what the venue is, how long is it, how short of it. They make all those decisions. Uh -huh. And once they make their decisions, they get a design team, lighting design, sound design, costume design, set design, and then you, you put a team together. And then each of us as individuals, we meet with these three people on this team, and we try to get on what it is that they need to get done. Okay. That's how the system works, right? So... Um, Basically, uh, when I would do that with Kenneth as the director, he would come to my studio. So I'd have a studio, he'd come in, and I'd say, I'm doing this, what do you think about that? Do you think this works in the show? And every time he would come to the studio, and he'd be like, what are you working on? I would show him all this other stuff, and he would get a kick out of the stuff that I was doing, and he loved the studio, he loved that I was going from instrument to instrument. So he's like, every time I come to your studio, I'm more entertained than when we're doing our shows. <laughs> what if we take something about this thing that you're doing here and we make a show out of that. So we also started to get meta, right? Uh -huh. So that's also, uh, I, I, I love the meta aspect of performance. I don't like the fourth wall. I want, I want the audience to be, that's why I love street theater and performance. It's right there. Everybody knows it's not theater per se. It's like we're freaks at the end of the day and we just want to get everybody going. Augenblick was very uh, um, interactive. So this, it's not really a show. There's no, there's no proscenium. There's no place where the audience is supposed to be. There's no time when it starts. You can come anytime you want. You know, it's, it's that looseness again, that kind of squat theater type of, uh, uh, attitude. So Kenneth decided to flip the whole the company that way, and then we kind of brought that into the whole thing. Um, and, and there was transitions of shows to go there. So that gets us to the show that you're talking about called The Illusion in the Aftermath. Yes, 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 yes. How that show came about is because not only did we get closer on this idea of realizing that we wanted the company to be less narrative and more sound-orientated and more experimental, mm -hmm. um, uh, I was all through these years, for many years, I've, been, I've had a meditation practice for, for many, many years. And, uh, and if like, you get to know me as a person, it, it's, it'll, it'll present itself in conversations when, if, 
be like a lot of times if you get close to somebody and they're having issues that are going on in their life, a lot of the times the advice that you're going to get from me, a lot of it's going to be about, you know, stillness, calmness, because I also have this manic type of energy. I'm high energy. Things can spin out of control very quickly. So I had to learn how to be still and be calm for me just to do the work that I need to do. This is oftentimes characteristics of people with limitless creativity. Yeah, so I had to learn this so I could survive in the world. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have been around. Otherwise, the squat was it. <laughs> I would never be able to bust out. Yeah. So um, I feel like in a little way, little moments and times, things, trials and tribulations that Kenneth was going through, you know, maybe some of the things, I, like I say to everybody, got in there or, you know, whatever it is, he started to do uh, a little investigation in himself and he took to it. So now we weren't only sharing a uh, love of art together, still going to galleries and seeing uh, great works of sculpture and building ideas after that, like we just started out when we first met. Now we're really talking about, you know, things within, starting to really talk about, like, what's it mean to... Um, you know, reflect. The existential nature of it all. We started to get into this, which was a whole second part of really the company together. We just okay. became a big thing. Um, and in a lot of ways, uh, I don't know if it's the right word, but it did kind of alienate most of the theater community around us. Um, I don't know if that's the right word. You know, like I said, people got to do their thing and that wasn't their thing. Right. And it was kind of our thing. So it kind of brought the company down into a smaller thing. And then we were like, well, what if instead of us making something that's a, about this existentialism, what if we create an environment where the audience can bring their idea about it? So this is when we started to think. Where can meditation be something that we could perform for? This so, is the concept I'm really interested yeah, in. Yeah, so, and this is Kenneth. Kenneth put the words together. A performance for meditation. That's when it clicked. And and then we got it. And then so what happened is that once that was the key, obviously the sound had to change. The aesthetic had to change. What could be the idea of what's going to bring them in? I went to the idea of the mandala, the idea of the drone, the idea of the om. All these things started to come in there. And that's what radically changed the sound. But again, I'm using all the doodads that I could make electronic music for. Um, the particular show that you're talking about, because we, we have done dif different iterations, but that particular one that you're talking about, the Illusionary Aftermath, interestingly enough, is all analog. There's no computer in the show. Right. The whole show is 100% analog. Uh, the audience is listening to the show on speakers, sitting on meditation cushions, and what they're having is pure analog signal that's going to the ears. And it's amazing, because I, I can't tell you how many compliments I would get after where people would just go, the sound was amazing. And we can get into that of why, you know, it's like, it's like, because this, again, it gets into these bigger questions like a particle or wave, right? And to me, that's the difference. I think like when sound gets to your ear digitally, it's a particle. It's hitting you, right? It's hitting you always at the same mathematical, whatever the, the bit or wave uh, length rate that's coming at you is always the same, no matter what frequency you're coming, it's being delivered at the same time, hitting you always the same. 
Where the analog, it's not. It's more fluctuating. It's hitting you slightly different. There's and, a ton of variables. Yes, so much more. And they're different in the moment of time. Right. They're radically changed. Just me turning on the system, those variables are going to be radically different analog systems. So it was great getting back into that. But that was something that I, it kind of drew a new audience in, and we kind of created a, this a whole new audience. And actually started getting grants for it. It was it really flipped the whole... The whole company became really a, a very, very different idea than it originally started out, which was exciting for us. Um, it seemed that way. COVID put the kibosh on it because yeah. it's such an intimate thing, you know? Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think it's going to be something that will eventually, hopefully, will come back. And that was what I say. Would you yeah. have a desire to do that yeah, again? Yeah, yeah. In fact, right now, we have a couple of things that we're working on. There's a couple of festivals that are going on that looks like we're going to get back into, and it does look like they're getting close again. So it's a, it's a good thing. I feel like that is kind of coming back. But uh, it did put the kibosh on us. There. But then that eventually evolves into, or at least it has another iteration where you perform with other musicians and you're at a drum kit and... Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so, well, you know, the whole time that I'm doing this, I'm still kind of making these DIY independent records. Okay. Releasing them on small labels. I'm doing this the whole time with all different groups. Um, uh even in temper distortion, we, uh, uh, we 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 I took the whole rock and roll theme. We put it inside a plexiglass box that you couldn't hear anything unless you put the headphones on. Say so there's this rock band that's playing in this plexiglass box. Right, and this is something I want to ask you about because when I watched that, it, I was really struck by it. I had a, a boss at one point who has got a long musical career, diverse, similar to yours in amount of diversity, but not exactly the the time and place, but. He hit me one time and he said, you know, someday, Eric, you're going to have to go to a museum to see a musician. And that one kind of stuck with me. And as we've all watched all the technology creep in and become more prominent things, you know, the threat of that is real. OK, but when I saw that performance you're speaking of with you guys in a plexiglass, it hit me. It was like, there it is. Yes. If this has to become a thing, that's what it will look like. Yes. So tell me kind of what the, the impetus was to do that and how that felt because you couldn't be any more opposite than being on a stage yes. or being in a squad or performing it. But you, you're, you're really the other end of the pool in a context that's dystopian in some degree or in a future, if nothing else. How, how did that come to be and how did that feel? Well, I like it because uh, you're really hitting the nail on the head. And in some ways, a lot of you used a lot of similar words of the reviews that particular show got, especially in the New York Times, which is very funny. You almost <laughs> had the same, the same words. You're kind of right on it. Uh, I do have to say it's something about that museum idea is there because it's a little bit of it's a little bit of the world Kenneth and I want to present work in. We'd love to present work in an art museum per se. That's right where we'd love our stuff to live because we love going there and we love seeing these things. So, so. Um, as dystopian as you make that sound, because we're both musicians, there's also something cool about it that I yeah, like. You know? Yeah, 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 very you know? much so. So, so that idea—you're hitting the nail on the head. But there's also this original idea, like the squatter thing, where there's this idea of proximity. So, um, like, it's very punk 
So again, here's the dichotomy between like, yes, on a giant stage at Madison Square Garden and then going to see the New York Dolls and like uh, uh, on Bleecker Street at Kenny's Castaways, okay, where you're right up in their face, right? So it's very punk to play in a small place and be right up to the stage. CBGB's just spitting on the band and spitting on you. And you're fully lit. They can see everything you're doing. Everything's right there. It's it's the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? That's the whole thing. So that proximity is very punk. Right? Yeah, very and much. then the idea of like Broadway and big theater. Everyone's sitting in their seats. Your numbered seat. You got your ticket. You got your seat on. You got to go sit. You're a nice boy. You sit down in your seat. The show goes. It starts, and then you sit there. The show's over. You applaud, and everybody leave. Very unpunk, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, 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 <laughs> something about that. So this idea is was in there. We wanted this proximity. We were like, how can we even beat the punks at their own game? We we're like, you can really get in our faces as a performer. Well. The first thing Kenneth thought is like, well, we need a barrier. So very quickly, a barrier that you can see through. So right away, it was just, it really came quickly where we just realized if we got got our faces in front of plexiglass, then the audience can come right up. So that just builds the whole show right there because then it was like, okay, but we don't want to get that proximity. We can't have that volume because you can't get right up in that musician with that volume that's going on because that's going to push the audience away. They're not, they're not just going to walk up to it. So I was like, no sound. In fact, the headphones have to be right there. So you have to walk right up to it to hear it. So it pulls everybody in. This is the theater we do. This is what we're really doing. The show is you making you walk in and come up to the thing. That's the whole show. So this, how does that feel when you know it's working? Oh, it's the best feeling in the world because that's what, it, that's what it is. You're getting it. That's the art form. That's when it becomes art. And the behavior and the anthropology, all the stuff that I'm into, right? All right. the belief system, all the culture. What do the Germans do when they come in? What do the Americans do when they come in? Like, you see it all different. What do the neighborhood kids do when they come in? What do the tourists do when they come in? If the show is the audience. We're just there. We're doing the same thing. Somebody playing the guitar. Someone's playing the drum set. You can't hear it, so you're all confused. What's going on? You walk up. You put the headphones on. You got a little volume like that, and you look at your friend. You're like, and the other thing is, we can't. We don't see you. We it's a mirror on your side. Yeah. So when you're looking at us and you see us, it's infinite. So this is where the meditation comes in, the reflection, because we're infinitely going on behind us. Right. So when you're seeing us, you're seeing us all infinitely. But analog, it's not done digitally or the video screen. It's all happening because it's a two-way mirror that's going, it's reflecting back and forth. So that that's the whole show. It's really, and then seeing the audience go, oh, well, I'm looking at this guy. What if I move around to this guy? And then little by little, you start to see them all kind of move around the whole thing. That's the show. That's such an interesting concept. You know, you can you can make what was be accessible in a way where it wouldn't be otherwise. Yeah, well, Ken, Kenneth has definitely got an eye on that, and he's he's ready to do it again. I see him. I see him all getting re-inspired again. So he definitely has his eye on that idea of how can you take something that's already be done and just flip it upside down and think that you're seeing something that's brand new. And this is bringing the people in. So I wanted to ask you about one more of your projects, too, before we get on to talking about Sons of Venus. I saw a project that you did in this dome with the projection and the people laying on the uh, LFE floor. Yes. Uh, this is, is this one step further than that? Now you're not watching it. You're in it. 
Yes, okay, yeah. So I, I would give you that. In some levels, it's true. And then not only that, but the narrative is the meditation. It is a meditation narrative. So you're actually going into a seven chakra meditation okay. as you're lying on the floor and you're having the actual color matched solfeggio frequencies be reproduced as the meditation is going on. So you're immersed in the actual tonal frequency of the chakra color. So as you're going from your lower chakra up to your higher chakra, I'm buzzing you underneath the floor, moving that frequency. So it's physically, visually, and auditorily getting you. 100%. And this dome was custom made for this or was made with this idea in mind, I should say? Yeah, yeah, no, yes. Uh, so uh, it, again, this was a collaborative team. I worked with a video artist and I worked with a set designer. Uh, and so the, the dome was created, the, the sound system was created, and the video uh, 3D mapping system was all created by the, the, uh, the three individuals, uh, XIX Collective. That's the collective that did it. And uh, sure, so basically it was a, a video designer with a, a builder coming to get architect, basically building these two things. Uh, and they came there. Uh, the video designer, somebody I worked with for decades. He knows me as a conceptual artist. He's an original Augenblicker. Oh, and nice. he came to me and says, we got this great dome. We got this great video, 3D mapping program, but what do we do? We, should, we need to do something. And uh, I said, well, let me check it out. Let me go and see what it is. So right when I went in there, I was like, okay, um, 7.1 sound system, seven, number seven, meta seven, meta seven. I got meta seven in two seconds. Meta seven, what is meta seven? If you, I'm very also into, uh, uh, you know, archaism, uh, occult practices, uh, numerology, all these things. I, I have an interest in them. Uh, the number seven has an interesting history. Very much so. Yeah, so it's like if you understand the, the, the nature of it, it has a nature, all numbers have a nature, so the number seven nature. So it was as simple as that, having the 7.1 sound system tricked off the number seven. I really could do a show on any number, really. But right away, it just it fueled it, very similar to what I was saying before. The meta seven, so seven, why not seven chakras? Why not seven people at a time? Why not seven performances in a day? Everything was seven, the length of the show, Everything equated to the number seven in the show. Perfect. So, uh, so it just became meta seven, meta seven, meta seven, meta seven. Every and then when you came in, but what was great is people were also really being hit for you know um, uh, uh, forty three minutes uh, for they were being hit with seven different solfeggio frequencies the whole time. So when they came out of there. You felt something. So that, that's what I was curious about. So did they still do this, or this was just a temporary thing? Oh, so uh, it, 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 it was an installation. Okay. It was set up for a month, and it ended up going, I don't know, for like a whole entire season. It did very well. I'm sure because this was a unique experience. Yes. And I'm curious, what was it like for people? Because even, even if you think you know what you're getting into, that was a unique experience. So what was, what was the result? We got in the habit of, like, as people came out of the dome, of videotaping them. So, you know, I, I kind of have them right way I can give you the responses so it, it would be different one thing that would have if you have somebody who's primed for it they have a meditation practice uh, they, they do yoga they um, Pilates they're doing some kind of uh, uh, sound therapy or uh, they chant that's a particular kind of group of person they come in and they're like, oh, this is the next level of this whole thing. They love it. They get what it is, right? It's like a sound bath, you know, uh, uh, 
tenth generation sound bath. Right. You know that that idea. They get it right away. Um, but loving it, digging it, saying what they felt different about it, the effectiveness of it, all the way to somebody who walks in who thinks they're going to come see some performance or gallery thing who have no yeah. clue they're not primed at all and they they maybe haven't touched their toes in like 10 years <laughs> you know they've maybe listened to everything on their phone you know you know like the complete opposite of somebody not primed at all who come out like they're tripping on mushrooms see that's that's what i'm curious because the nature of those things and how much they affect the unsuspecting i think really proves it and i i found that to be a really unique thing so definitely like you i've seen people like people i've known my whole life take a psychedelic drug and you can see by their behavior that they're tripping you can just tell that they are Mm -hmm. seeing the same exact thing people walking out of the dome like they took a substance and they're not never took one like really like you know I had Yale. The people, people from Yale came down to check it out. I was, uh, I was getting interviewed to do a work study over there, so I was talking to a few people, and I just said, oh, you know, you're asking me about stuff I'm doing. If you want, why not, I'll invite you to come to this thing. So they just showed up unsuspecting, laid down on the floor, and came out, and they were like, you know. <laughs> you've done it. Yeah. By Joe, you've done it. <laughs> Bam! <laughs> so, yeah, so that, that was an interesting aspect. But um, it did come back. Um, uh, uh, one of the people that were involved in it ended up uh, bringing the dome down to Florida. So it's uh, one of the also how the so Florida is a, a part of my life. Also, I'm a New Yorker, but when you're a real New Yorker, Florida is your backyard. Yeah. It's just the way it goes. This I, I know. I've always had family down here. My friends have always had family down here. So ever since a kid, I come to Florida. I always feel home. Now, I, I admit I'm used to the East Coast. The West Coast is new for me. I'm not so used to it. I've only been here a few times. Uh, but I fell in love with it the first time I ever came here, uh, especially the beaches here. I love it. There's a tranquility that's here. I'm also a fan of the opposite side of the Gulf over in that part of Mexico, Veracruz, over in that mm-hmm. area. Yep, yep. So, so I, there does seem to be something about the nature here that I really like. But also on the East Coast is uh, Homestead, Florida. A lot of people don't know of. It's south of Miami. Yeah. yeah. It's where they're growing a lot of the fruits and vegetables. That, uh, it's where you hear about when a hurricane's coming. Right, because like one of the first ones that's yep. really sticking out there. Yep. Well, you got it like kind of like the East Village back in the day. You have a lot of empty space that you could do stuff. So yeah, so a couple of crazy people that I know that are just trying to do some big raver parties. That same world, trying to do something out there. They yeah, we're hosting events, and uh, uh, one of my friends brought the dome down to see if something could happen. And uh, I went down and said, oh, "Let's see if we can do it down there." But what happened is they put it inside this uh, airplane hangar. This, this, we put the dome, and it, the dome is like only takes seven people. So it's this little dome inside this big airplane hangar. And I was like, well, what if we make it a big one? <laughs> so we turned the projectors up into the airplane hangar, and then we filled up the whole room. And then we called it Meta Meta 7. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we still had the dome. You could still go into the dome, but then you had a whole experience that was outside of the dome, too. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, so that's something that, uh, you know... Um, you know, maybe it can come back. It's definitely something that, that can happen. Uh, I'm in the process of, you know, trying to see, you know, wh- where the funding is going to come from all these things. Uh, these things cost money. Of so course. it's always about the funding that happens. So we just did that last year. Uh, so I think this year we're going to maybe do a couple of different things and try some uh, new ideas. So we'll see what happens. 
Um, yeah. So seems like a lot of positive experience for people on tap, right? Yeah, there. yeah, That's yeah. Unique. And uh, and 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 very similar to like the the way that we get these new shows that we do, you do kind of have to leave the old one old ones behind. Right. You just got to do it, and and that's what gives them a little bit. Of, it gives us our cachet because what starts to happen, I think, why the company's gotten more popular is because people start to go, "No, you don't understand. This is going to go away. You got to go see it." And that's what starts to bring the people. Do that's, you find that helps your creative process too, being able to clear the slate and, and start anew? Yeah, I mean, I guess it goes back to that meditation thing, right? You know, that's why the Buddhists were so into that idea of making, you know, impermanent art. You know. That's a little bit of that idea. So I do think so. I think there is something about identity that gets tricky as for an artist. If you start to identify as something, if, for example, like uh, like La Mama in the East Village, like once they identified of experimental theater, now they have to do that La Mama thing. They're not experimenting anymore. They have to do that La Mama thing to be that La Mama theater for them to sell La Mama tickets. Yeah, expectation can kill yeah, experimentation. Yeah, exactly. So that's what, basically that's what goes on there. When you go there, you're kind of knowing what you're going to get, you know? So branding yourself even as an experimental thing, you're kind of hurting yourself. That's why, you know, kudos to temporary distortion, the idea of the name. It's like that's, it can be anything, really. It's just that moment of whatever your daily life is is temporarily distorted. That's all it is. Yeah, that's a tricky world to navigate, but it seems like everybody's prowess and clarity with their creativity helps it come to life. That's yeah. super cool. And it's a little strange now, because, like, uh, you know, to, to use the nomenclature, the nomenclature is the, you know, I might be off-brand right now, because <laughs> that's the way everybody is. Everybody's trying to be on-brand. Right. And I get that. I understand the value of it. Like, you know, my whole world is upside down, because young, the last thing people, young people wanted to be when I was a kid was on-brand. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. But, and, I, and I'm not saying it's not cool or uncool. I get it. But I, just to show you how different the world is, that even how savvy young people are now. They know all this stuff. And, and the whole aspect of the business, like when I was growing up, I didn't know anything about record deals. I didn't know anything about grants. I didn't know anything about branding or marketing or social marketing or any of this stuff. I had none of that. All that stuff you... Everything had to be instinct and what you could glean from the people immediately around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we would never want any virus, but now, like, it's all about going viral, you know? That's the whole idea. So it was like we would never even think about those things. But I see, like, young people, they have all this artillery now that when they put something, it's like, it's it really is like a 1950s marketer's dream. Right. Because they do, uh, all the artists are doing all that work that used to have all these other people do. Back in our day, it was like, you know, stay in your lane. We were the creatives, and then you had people who really understood business to really get it out there. Now it's, you know... you got to be both and then some. All of it, 100%. So, so that's, that's an interesting challenge. So, again, and I'm just bringing that back to your question because that's what it's all about. So on some levels, I, you know, yeah, if I could just stay focused there, that would be great. But on the same level, like, yeah, does there have to be some branding that's going on? Does it have to be some consideration? Do these things have to come back? Do we have to shelve them in a way that they have to come back there? I think that's where the museum maybe comes into place, that we make like a museum version of it or something like that, where you get maybe a slight taste of it in that level. 
Again, I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking out loud. Well, that's sort of the thing. If these eclectic things and these fringe nature things get relegated so hard, that will be the only avenue left. Right, but even more than that, if everything just becomes digital and we really like, so let, let's go back to your, your beautiful question we were asking about where the person told you like a musician's going to be in, in a museum. That's where you're going to go see a musician. Seeing is going to be in a museum because we're going to see so differently. We're going to hear so differently. The way you and I see and hear and speak right now, even that is going to be archaic. Right. We're going to hear in such a different way. We're going to see in such a different way. Our interacting is going to be in different ways. Like, well, now even seven one is peanuts to Atmos. Yes, exactly. I mean, there you go. And it just it's going to keep flipping and flipping and flipping. I always think of uh, Horton. Here's a who. Mm-hmm. Do you know this? Oh yeah, Doctor Seuss. Yeah, yeah. Something about that when I was a kid. That Horton. Here's a who. When I first read that story as a little kid, I was like. Oh, this is some adult shit that's being snuck in here. Yes, yes. <laughs> I knew yes, right away. Yes, yes. I was like, this is this is not just for little kids. Yeah. This is a little something you're trying to sneak in here. You're trying <laughs> to get me to think. I know what you're trying to do. You know, I could feel that in there, right? And uh, and that's what it is. It's like really everything is going to be just come, you know, the multiverse. Again, we're going to create these multiverses. And then you, we're going to hear this way in this multiverse, and we're going to see in this way in this multiverse, and we're going to speak in this multiverse. And, and we may never go into the, those multiverses over there. Or, you know, you and I, we might be travelers of all different multiverses, and some people will never leave them, their verse. They're always going to stay there. See, and, and this is the part uh, I feel a little bit apprehensive about, because I think about that and the scene you came up in and how that helps you learn and grow and all the exemplary things that you see in real time face to face. And I know a lot of musicians had that experience too. And now this generation coming up under us, they don't have that experience. They can see each other online. They can do all these things in these virtual ways and they can debatably glean so much more information from it, but the experience is lost. And I'm very grateful for you to have shared some of that today because I think some of that is I I think it can't be lost. Mm. You know, the incubating in these types of environments where we're actually working together face to face is important. Um, And that's that really reminded me why I want to talk to you about uh, your release now with Sons of Venus, Crisis to Crisis. I want to talk a little bit about that because I think that that's the point where you're at now where it's kind of buttoned up everything. You're almost full circle in this a lot of ways. I listened to the album a few times and I feel like it's got the electronic element. It's got a little bit of punky thing. I hear the who. I hear Pink Floyd. You know, it's uh, only six tracks, but it's 45 minutes. So, you know, help me help me understand and, and help our viewers and listeners listeners understand what it's like to have this huge breadth of experience, this huge breadth of knowledge, all of the co-conspirators, for lack of a better term, you've been able to glean so much from along the way that people haven't necessarily had now in these generations. That brings you to the point where you're still able to make and feel inspired making new creative bodies of work with new people. You're not sitting on the sidelines. You're not recycling old stuff. You're not doing the same thing you've always done. You're still pushing forward and making use of your whole history now. What does that look like? Yeah, no, it's a great question, and I, and I, I know you're going to enjoy this. So, yeah, so Sons of Venus, like the thousands of bands we've all go through as musicians that we play, it started from another band, and basically, again, like so many things, it's, you know, it's, it's a place. So 
Sons of Venus is a place, and this place, oh my God, if you've ever been there, I know you love it. If you haven't been there, you would have loved it. It's called the Music Building. It's on 8th Avenue in New York City. Uh, it's up uh, in Midtown, and it's great when you're coming down 8th Avenue. If you're in a cab or if you're riding a bicycle and you're hearing all the sounds of the city, all of a sudden when you pass the Music Building, you'll just hear... <laughs> like the Doppler effect, right? Right. You hear all the guitars coming out of the rock window. Rock and roll drive-by. Yeah, rock and roll drive-by just comes by. And I've been going there for a thousand years since back in the day. It's a stinky smelling building, uh, and it's just filled with musicians from top to bottom. Uh, and it's a place, it's a place where, like you're saying, these things, these mushrooms come together and grow in dark places. And that's what Sons of Venus is. We were just dudes that were going in and playing in different bands inside this music business and music building and just fornicating musically and idea-wise and going to the bar across the street and playing with this one and playing with this one. And eventually we fell into this group where there was some vibe there. Um, I'll backtrack a little bit in my process. So I'm very improvisational in my process. I, like I said, that's the Augenblick. What, what am I feeling now? Right now, blah, just get it out right at that moment and use that in that moment and try to hold on to the now. And to me, that's improvisation. That's what it is. I'm not taking something that's pre-planned. It's not, I'm not taking something like, this is what I have to do on Friday. What am I doing right now? And what happens is that I feel very comfortable in that environment. And when I meet other people that are comfortable in that environment, it separates the haves and the have-nots. Some musicians, I got to know the notes. I got to know the key. I got to know the bridge, the verse. When's the song begin? When's it end? When does it count off? And there's other musicians... Right. So in my comfortability and being in that and leading in that environment, I attract other musicians like that. So those musicians at the music building came together. Uh, these are my partners in Sons of Venus. Um, and um, we just started to improvise music. Um, I bought this thing called, oh my God, I'm forgetting, my, my brain is not working so great today. Uh, it was hot. Oh my <laughs> it was God. hot out there oh today. My God. I think I might have melted a circuit or two. Yeah, you uh, and the rest yeah, of us. Yeah, yeah, So, because uh, I, I couldn't believe I was forgetting the la uh, label name, but I, uh, I'll come back to it. Um, uh, Rough Trade, that's the label I couldn't remember before. Um, so, I got this thing called a cymatic. Hmm? It's a cymatic, is a basically, it's a 16 channel analog in digital encoder that you stick a, uh, a drive into, or USB stick, and you take the uh, insert or out of a board, and you can instantly get your 16 channels of a board and digitize the tracks right into just a little drive. Just uh, instantly organizes them into 16 digital files. Nice. Really cool, just like a camera if you're taking pictures. Mm -hmm. It just makes those folders. So I would take that little guy. They, they didn't last. They, I bought three of them when it came out, <laughs> and I left them in all the places that I would work at, so I always had them there. And they went out of business. I called, guys, what's going on? They're like, nobody bought them. I'm like, oh, my God, I love this thing. I can't believe it. It just shows you how oddball I well, am. Well, you got to snap them up on the used market. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I got three of them, thank God. So, um, and I love them, and I still use them. Um, so I could just take the board, mic everything up, and we would just jam, 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 and I would get high 16 channels of high-quality audio. All the drums, all the vocals, all the bass, DI, and mic, 
all the guitars in stereo. Anytime I want. Pick it, put it in, put it in my computer, drag it right into Ableton, boom, I'm playing back. Anything I want to do, it's all there. High quality recording. Never tell them, no one even knows I'm running it. Just sit there, I go, you guys ready? You got the sound? You sound good? Okay, let's jam. I hit record, and that's it, away it goes. It plays as long as the drive. I got three terabyte drive, it'll just keep going, nonstop. Perfect. Nobody knows, right? So I was doing this as we were jamming, and I was going home, and I just took this and I edited it, and I basically made an album out of it. Uh, and I sent, I sent to the guys, they're like, what is this? Who is this? I'm like, it's you, it's us. I took all our cool little parts and I just chopped it all up, recycler style, like drum and bass. Yeah. I chopped it all up and I made a, a record out of it. And that became our, our first record. That's the first Sons of Venus record. So they were hooked. They're like, we like this improvisation thing. I'm also able, I can make, I work on lyrics all the time. I'm writing poetry all the time. So I can improvise stories and words. So I can do vocals in an improvisation in real time. I have a sense of composition, so I know how to repeat certain things that give you the illusion that it's a composition. How important do you find those skills to be in keeping your compositions moving and not yeah, ending up with half a song? Well, because what it does is that once I bring back a lyric that, let's say if I'm improvising with somebody and they're hearing what I'm saying and then I bring it back, it's a signal like, oh, we're back. So it's a great way to communicate to the other musicians and it starts to uniform the improvisation. Similar to like a head in jazz. Right? You got a little head, you repeat that head, you know, you do the whole cycle. That's what I do lyrically. I, whatever, a lot of times the first thing I say is the thing that comes back and they realize, oh, we're playing a song. It's going around in a circle. Everyone gets on the circle and next thing you know, you're no longer in improvisational mode. You're playing a song that you're learning right on the spot. It's very fresh. The tempo is always correct. The, the, the push and pull is always correct because nobody is arguing. Everyone's just going to what feels good. Right. So you really get great recordings. Nothing's on the grid. Nothing's on a click track. So you really get some great feeling stuff. And that's the first Sons of Venus. So how did the, the newest album, Crisis to Crisis, differ from that? Because that, to me, sounded definitely more organized. So if you patchworked that one, you did an amazing job. So I'll tell you how that goes. But I, this, there's a second record there. So I have to tell you okay. how to do that. So they're confident, they were so confident in the improvisation. We were like, well, what's the next idea? The next idea is no editing. Literally just record the improvisation. Now that they know what I'm up to. <laughs> that was your first mistake. Yeah, now they know what I'm up to. Let's just go for it. And we did. What we did is we worked out more concepts. I showed them how I'm working harmonically. I have harmonic concepts of what I do. Not unlike like what jazz musicians do, except it's not jazz harmony. But similar to what they're doing. The harmony is leading the tone. So if you get a little bit of that, if you have like the smallest amount of music theory, it's something a musician can understand. There's harmonic lead tones. And if, they, if whoever's pushing it, I show them, it's like, this is how I'm pushing it, and see how you're getting it? Now throw it at me, and then they throw it back, now I'm following you. So feel the push and pull. The real dialogue. Yeah, the real dialogue start to happen. That's the second uh, Sons of Venus record. And I recorded that on a handheld Tascam stereo recorder, no editing. That's the second record. That's punk. Yes. And it's stereo. There's no close mic. And the only thing I did to get room tone, remember, like, we put the cork on here, so we yeah. have the reflection? Right. I put that on a really reflectory surface, so that's where the room tone is coming from. Gotcha. Because when I was recorded it just on a regular stand, it's like, it's too dry. Too flat. And then when I just put it on the shiny surface, I was like, oh, my God, there it is. There's the sound. That's the second record. Very cool. And I, what I did with that is I overdubbed it. So once I had the basic tracks, I went over to vocal harmonies, 
and I put some uh, 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 sound design effects and uh, echoes and things like that to give it another layer that was there. But the bed tracks, all in real time, all improvised, two microphones, like old, old days. It's even older than pop. I was going to say, yeah. for the people that don't know, that's how all recordings were done back in the that's day. That's how it was done back in the day, and that's how it was. So that, I built up their confidence. But then... Um, COVID happened, uh, we got separated, we were in three different places, we weren't in the same city. And you were in New York primarily? I was in Connecticut at the time because I was doing a residency at Yale. Gotcha. So I was like uh, two and a half hours away. Uh, and uh, uh, the bass player went to his home in Maryland and the drummer was in New York. Um, so um, what I was doing, I had a studio set up because I was sound designing at, uh, in New Haven. I had a recording studio set up, and um, I had a lot of music. Like I said, I, music, music is just playing in my head all the time, and I had a ton of it. So um, I'm, a, I'm kind of a pedal geek, like most of us are. Uh, I have two very big pedal boards that I combine together. One goes to one amp, one goes to another amp, and they run in stereo. Nice. Yeah, and, uh, and, um, and the delays are, I can sync and out of sync the delays. It's a big sound. And, uh, and I record them in stereo, uh, and then that's a big part of the, the sound of the tracks and the mix of the tracks. Uh, and uh, so I had my two pedal boards with me up in New Haven. I set them up. I had a little studio set that was there. So I was just tracking me just doing these songs. The same thing I would do if I was jamming with Sons of Venus, just without the, the two guys there. And I, it was all improvisational. I wasn't writing music. I wasn't doing that. I just heard what it went in my head, set up the system, set up the microphones, walked up to the microphone, did my poetry, played my guitar, and I tracked 45 minutes of these six different track ideas from beginning to end. And that's what those tracks were. Uh, and just out of curiosity, you know, and we're keeping in touch. We're really close. The band is really close. We're really good friends. We're not just a band. We're really, really good friends. So I say, like, they're like, what are you up to? And I say, I'll show you what I'm up to. And I sent them <laughs> tracks. And they came back right away. They're like, oh, my God, we love this. Let's make this the third Sons of Venus record. We love it. This would be a great Sons of Venus record. So I helped them from afar build a little project studio in their own house and uh, I got because this was all COVID times yes all COVID times and I got Ruslan to overdub the drums and I got Igor to overdub the bass so that's how that that third record is made so they overdub the drums after the fact and overdub the bass after the fact that's rare and how long has that one about you just recently released that yeah yeah it's, uh, it's up like about a month very cool. Yeah. And that's Sons of Venus, Crisis to Crisis. Crisis to Crisis. And I very much look forward to having you back with some of your co-conspirators and going into that a little bit more. Yeah, that'll be fun. So I want to thank you very much for coming down, John. I love your stories. I know we're going to talk more. I very appreciate your time. Thank you so much, brother. Yeah, brother. Appreciate thank it. you, man. Thank you. All right.